The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on your location. This is uh, Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. With Valentine's Day around the corner, uh, one of the topics that we have discussed uh, in some detail at various points in the history of the program is the archaeology of gender. My guest today is Dr. Rosemary Joyce, who is the professor of anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley, and uh, she has also been at Harvard University before moving to Berkeley in 1994, where she serves as the director of the Hearst Museum of of Anthropology, and she's a member of the Anthropology Department. Gender is a critical issue in archaeology, has been for at least 20 years, uh, probably more so. And so as a background to what we're uh, doing, I would like to first of all welcome Rosemary Joyce to the program. Thank you for appearing. Thank you for inviting me. And then let's move right into it. Rosemary, why don't you tell us a little bit on the archaeology of gender, how it evolved as a subdiscipline, and how you see it emerging and moving forward? Well, uh, the sort of standard narrative says that in the 1980s, especially with the rise in women in archaeology, a lot of archaeologists began asking the question, what were women's lives like in the past? So from that perspective, this began with a... um, where, where are women in the stories that we tell about the past, and can we see women in the past? Um, but there's also an alternative way of thinking about this, which is around the 1980s, archaeologists who all of us were trained in processual archaeology began being interested in people in general and how people affect the world around them. And when you start thinking about people, you can't think about a generic person, what my colleague Ruth Trinum called faceless blobs. You have to think about powerful men, um, women who are working the fields, children and their contribution to the record. So some archaeologists in the 1980s began asking the more general question, what kinds of experiences did people have in the past? And when you ask that question about human beings, gender enters in immediately because it's one of the more significant ways that our experiences vary. 
So if we go back to sort of chronologically anyway, if we go back into time, one of the earliest uh, differentiations, if you want to call it that way crudely, um, in distinctively identifying women in the archaeological record, of course, would be the Venus figurines of the Paleolithic and into the early Neolithic. How do we develop a sense of what women uniquely left behind as sort of a uh, signature in the archaeological record going back from the Paleolithic into uh, later times? That's a really good question, a really good example. So in that initial 1980s archaeology of gender, the idea was that we would find a signature of women. And so people were trying to do a very systematic analysis of what kinds of work women did and men did in different times and places, because then you could look for the tools that women used. So from that perspective, um, studies of Paleolithic figurines that began to note the work of Olga Sofer, that began to note the very detailed textile impressions on them and the very detailed textile patterns on these human figurines showing what appeared to be female bodies with um, breasts and and big abdomens and things. Uh, People argued that women must have been making the textiles. Now, in more recent years, archaeologists of gender have heavily criticized that initial idea that we would find a simple signature, that there were, would be like a tool set that was women's tool set, or that women would be the only people making some certain kind of artifact. And in my own uh, work, I've suggested specifically for the Paleolithic that we can't assume that making textiles was women's work or that all women made textiles. What we can do is looking at those figurines say that in that society, the female body was something of interest and the female body ornamented with textiles was of great interest. And so that allows us to begin to ask the question, what kind of female experience? Because it's not all female bodies. And it, and in fact, in Paleolithic figurines, there are not just clear female bodies. There's also representations that if you turn them a different way, look like male genitalia. So we can start saying, well, there's actually some interest in the sexual body in the Paleolithic. What about the one of the longest held notions that uh, we've had, especially those of us who were schooled as uh, as probably you and I were in the 1980s, is the differentiation between hunter gatherers as sort of a basic societal, uh, or rather socioeconomic and subsistence based mode of adaptation that men were the hunters, women were the gatherers. It seems like that notion has also, if not turned on its head, at least been viewed in more in more grander in grander complexity than we had a normal initially broken it down. Absolutely, uh, the famous volume um, "Man the Hunter" and the whole idea of man the hunter, woman the gatherer, real ethnographers who are working in the contemporary world with hunting and gathering societies actually have made this a much more complex and much more interesting picture. And some of them were involved in the early days, the 1980s and the early 1990s, when hundreds of papers were presented at conferences, all of a sudden within 10 years. 
many of the people writing these things work with living hunter-gatherers. And what they were saying were things like, look, when you see who goes out hunting, the hunting group is actually mixed sex. There's men and women. It may be more assorted by age with the older men and women staying back at the base camp along with the children, but the actual hunting and gathering group might be mixed, and that's especially true, say, of people in um, Arctic or subarctic locales. Even in the more traditional, um, traditionally thought of hunting and gathering societies like those of uh, the Kalahari, people began to look at the way that hunting and gathering worked and found that while hunting might be and meat might be a well um, a well-received product of men's work in those societies, the bulk of the calories or the bulk of the carbohydrates was coming from women's gathering. So whether you looked at this in terms of how you organize a hunt and the fact that hunting might be organized more by the age of the people who are physically able to do it or how important meat was in the diet or the degree to which meat was celebrated in the diet, we began to actually see that there were opportunities for male and female investments in subsistence to be recognized. And, of course, this goes along with the ethnography of hunter-gatherers, where both men and women earn positions of some authority and respect, although they might be on base, different bases. Would you say that projecting the ethnographic record, certainly as it is today, uh, to prehistory would be a valid analogy, or uh, do we simply, I'm, we clearly don't have a lot of information on this archaeologically, or at least not that can, can be readily identified. Do you think it's a valid, object, uh, valid analogy? The uh, way we use analogy and archaeology from the living peoples of the present is a very lively topic. We need to use analogies from living people because they at least show us a way that things were done by real humans. So they help expand our imagination beyond our own experience and also are a check on our imagining anything goes. But we do know a couple of things that are really important to keep in mind. The first is that hunter-gatherers living in the modern world are modern people. They are not fossils. So the people of the Kalahari who are doing hunting and gathering are in contact with people who are farmers and ultimately down the line with industrial societies. We can't say they're unchanged indications of how life was like in the past, but we can use them as a way to inspire our models of the past. And then the trick as archaeologists is to figure out what would we then see archaeologically and when we started actually asking the question that way, we can't really do the how am I going to see women or how am I going to see men with very limited exceptions when people in the past decided to show us maleness and femaleness, for example, in art. Correct. And, and, and so the question then becomes, I, once you get beyond the Paleolithic and you get into the Neolithic where there is more of, shall we say, a differentiation of labor when we get into complex societies, do we see a more discrete signature in the archaeological record? Is it, is it more palpable, more recognizable once we get into societies and the identification of activity sets that we might be able to sort out? in terms of gender? I think, 
I think you can say yes, that when we get to complex societies, one of the dimensions of complexity is how you divide up the work in the complex society so that not everybody is basically participating in everything. And also in complex societies, you start to get industries, crafts, specialized forms of work, which do create their own tool sets. And in many complex societies, there are... Um, if not outright sort of laws against different kinds of people doing work, there are cultural expectations about who's going to do which task. So, for example, in Mesoamerica, Mexico and Central America, where my research is set, we know that at the time the Spanish arrived, weaving and spinning were stereotypical women's labor. It wasn't that men couldn't do it. Men did do these tasks, especially where... There was an industrial scale of production in the Aztec Empire. But whenever they were depicted or talked about, they were depicted and talked about as the ultimately feminine thing to do. And we believe that most women were actually taught how to spin and how to weave as part of their training. Whether they did that all the time or whether they did other things as well is a separate question to be investigated. But that means that when we find the tools from spinning and weaving, we have a reason to begin to talk about women's role in the economy. So you raise a very, very significant and provocative topic here, and that would be specifically that there was a gender-based division of labor, certainly, as you say, in the areas that you've discussed. Do we have parallel developments in other parts of the world that would confirm this separately? Um, in each area, my position is in each area we need to investigate this as an empirical question. We can't assume that there was a gender division of labor everywhere. And this is um, quite a change from where we started in the 1980s. Where we started in the 1980s was with the assumption that there always was some sort of gender division of labor. That was an anthropological thought. But if we assume there always is, then we're going to look for some sort of patterning, and usually for a dualistic patterning, because we normally think about all the women doing one kind of thing and all the men doing another kind of thing. Um, if you think about it, that's actually problematic as well. Uh, complex societies often give us of multiple lines of evidence that show us the stereotypic kind of work that at least some men do or at least some women do. But we can't necessarily generalize from that to all men or all women. And anyway, images are images. They're not actuality. This is where... Um, the bioarchaeological approaches to looking at musculoskeletal markers, the signs of what people actually do with their bodies, have been very interesting because in some times and places where we may not even have other lines of evidence, they'll show us that groups of men were using their body differently than groups of women. Can you give us an example of bioarchaeological evidence that shows a predominance of one particular gender working in a particular area or particular uh, aspect of the subsistence round uh, over another? The main um, early demonstrations of this were with North American, Southwestern U.S. populations and built on the ethnographic observation that women used grinding stones to grind corn and they were grinding large amounts of corn. We have these fantastic milling bins that are basically big grinding stones next to each other. And in some studies, what we found was that there was evidence of the differential
differential use of the upper arms compared to male skeletons. Now, I have to say that even in those studies that show those kinds of, of patterns, they're not 100%. So if you actually look at the population and don't divide it into the males and females first, but look for the signs of the use of these muscle groups, you may find that you've got a mixed group of people. A dissertation writer at Berkeley, Julie West, who just finished her dissertation on a colonial Mexican population, a place where we expect women were doing very different work. They were the people grinding corn. They were the people weaving. They were the people spinning. She didn't divide her samples by male and female to begin with. She looked at the muscle markings and found groups, yes, with very different uses of their bodies. But not while some of the groups have a predominance of females and some of the groups have a predominance of males, they all are mixed. So what that's telling us today is that these divisions of labor were not as rigid as the notions we get from ethnography, which of course were based on informants telling ethnographers stereotypical things not on what people actually do. If you're a man in the Maya world and there's not a woman around to make your food, you're not going to starve to death. Well, let's, uh, we'll be back and we'll discuss this topic in greater detail with my special guest, Rosemary Joyce of the University of California at Berkeley, right after these messages. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Are you experiencing a relationship or a relation slip? Without the carefully measured balance of spirit and ego, it might not be what you want it to be. On Relation Slips with Dr. Bobby Summer and Lori Lynn Mann, we'll explore relationships from two unique ends of the spectrum. In addition, we'll have amazing guests, both experts and celebrities, and we'll hear from you, too. Relation Slips can be heard live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are discussing the question of gender and sexuality on the eve of Valentine's Day 2015. My guest is Dr. Rosemary Joyce, a professor of anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley and a researcher who has devoted a fair amount of her career towards questions of gender and sexuality. One of the things I think that allows us to inform and expand our interpretive ranges of uh, the division of labor, if you want to call it, and, and eventually we'll get into division and sexuality as well, is uh, certainly the depiction of women and men in uh, works of art that start to assume a much more extensive role once we get into later periods of prehistory and certainly into the historic record. What about depictions and what are they telling us in terms of division of labor and and how accurate would you say that they are as we uh, progress up through the time scale and get into societies in which art is is more of a record of of what people were actually doing? Yeah, it's... um one of the things that we face as a challenge in the archaeology of gender and the archaeology of sex as well is what to make of the visual evidence. So if we go back to those Paleolithic figurines that you led off with, um, one of the oldest ways of looking at those figurines with the bodies with the bulbous hips and everything was as fertility images, as somehow presenting us an idealized body, or even a sexualized body. They've been described as uh, Paleolithic Barbies. Um, That all consisted of the viewer projecting into the figurine a kind of a modern sensibility about bodies, the idea that they were nude, which was scandalous, Um, the idea that these body parts were really emphasized. And combining that with this sort of idea that more primitive people were were fearful about fertility and, and showing a fertile female body would ensure fertility. When you move forward in time to time periods that are historically documented, people can't quite do those kinds of primitivizing arguments. So they have to actually look at the artworks and say, why are female bodies being shown this way? Why are male bodies being shown this way? And one of the big things that developed out of gender archaeology was, although it started as a where are the women in the past, it quickly um, moved to what are men and women like. Uh, And that then becomes a much more interesting thing to do. So when you look at Mesopotamian art of the Assyrian period, you see stone stele and three-dimensional stone sculptures of the ruler who is male. The art historian Irene Winter has shown us that there's actually a sort of a glorification of the almost nude male ruler's body as a perfect ideal for what the masculine body should look like. I like to compare this to advertising today. You get male models on advertising that 
really are sort of setting a standard that nobody can live up to, but it means that you keep trying to live up to it. And that notion of the, the image, especially of the hierarchically placed male or female, the ruler, as the goal to which you can aspire but never quite attain, turns out to intersect in really interesting ways with the theories coming out of feminist and queer theory about how we actually learn to live in our bodies as males or females or other genders, that we are surrounded by images of what we should be like. And those images always exceed what we can be like. They're always something that's an aspirational goal that we can't quite do unless we're part of a very tiny minority that sets those standards. So in complex societies, when we, now when we look at this kind of, these kinds of monuments, as in my work on the Maya, for example, when I see all these young men running around um, doing athletic activities and older men and women are all shown in the scene staring at these active young male bodies, what I can say is that there's actually a kind of an eroticism about young men's bodies. That's an interesting question, and I'd like to get to ba back to that a little bit later on, certainly the feminist and queer archaeological perspectives that really have sort of catapulted into the forefront recently. But before we get into that, one of the issues that you did raise, of course, was the depiction of uh, the ruler and, uh, and sort of the idealized uh, version of what males and, of course, females are supposed to look like, what they're supposed to do. So the question becomes, since most of the artistic representations during the Greek period, and as you said, going back in the Assyrian period before that, were certainly the behaviors or the depiction of behaviors among the elite, the question is, to what degree can we uh, project that into the working classes or the people who actually supported the uh, the patriarchal sucked structures and the kingship uh, chronologies of, say, ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. To what degree did that actually filter into the uh, the infrastructure and the supporting characters, the slaves, and and the hierarchy of the social social situation at those times? Do we have any information on that? That's a great question, and it's actually one that a number of archaeologists have tried to address, again, by what we do in archaeology, is we use multiple lines of evidence. So I think the beginning point for all of us is, no, we can't project what the rulers are showing us to everybody else in society, because we know one thing about rulers, which is they're not working the same way other people work. They may do exactly. some work, but they're not working as hard, and they're not working in the same way. Um, so... When we look at a complex society, for example, classical Athens, where if you took, here you've got texts as well as images, if you took the texts and images seriously, you would say that women were secluded inside houses, far away from the public scene and had no public role, and all the public roles were done by men, um, and women were entirely dependent. Well, that's true, except for the women who weren't. Um, Many, many houses, house plans now are known from classical Athens as a result of archaeology. When you look at those house plans, they don't all have the secluded area for the women to be in privacy. So that's an archaeological indication that that model doesn't generalize. 
And then you can look at the texts that exist in classical archaeology, whether they're carved as inscriptions or written as texts that have come down to us reproduced. And they tell us that um, enslaved women were actually sent out to the market. Okay, that means that free status women were in some sense more limited in what they did than enslaved women. Women who were involved in the sex traffic in classical Athens also went out in public and even took part in events with men that women were theoretically excluded from. So when you start actually looking at multiple lines of evidence and keeping an account with complex societies that being male or female doesn't mean you're all on the same team with all the other women or men, then you actually can see that there's lots of different experiences of being female and being male, that they vary with class, they vary with age. And in the pre-modern past, age and class may have mattered a lot more than just your sex. And that certainly is something that uh, we have done a fair amount of research on. Uh, the question is, uh, do we have more, do we have anything else in the archaeological record above and beyond artistic depictions that cast anything or any information on, on this type of sexual differentiation, um, say, through looking at uh, non-artistic items of archaeological evidence? Do we have anything like that? Well, normally when I teach this, I point out that what we use in the archaeology of gender is bioarchaeology, so what the body actually gives us is a record not just of work but also of diet, differentials in diet between men and women, men and women of different classes, um, younger and older women are all detectable using physical anthropology. Health status, again, may vary according to sex but also according to these other intersecting variables. So you have to look at all the intersecting variables at once. That's one of the problems of this. You can't just look at one at a time. So I, I always start with the physical anthropology, the bioarchaeology. Sure. And then we can also look at the mortuary archaeology. Where do bodies end up in, in the end? Are they treated differently? Are they treated the same? And again, cross-cutting dimensions. We can then look at space and the way space is laid out and where different activities are or are not segregated. You know, do we have separate kitchen spaces? Do we have, as in the Greek houses, separate uh, public and private spaces? All of these actually are evidence of gendered, of the potential for gender difference. There's no single smoking gun or um, archaeological signature that we've had to give up as a goal. And the least useful thing turns out to be what we started with, which is the idea that there'd be a toolkit, which was what women used, and a toolkit, which was what men used. Toolkits go right. with tasks. If you can show that a task is gendered, then sure, the toolkit will be primarily used by the person, but you have to have a separate way of showing that the task was gendered. Um, we do have, again, the reflection in the body of what people were doing. And finally, as you said, we do have art, and while most of the art we think of as monumental inscriptions and things, worldwide, people make small-scale figurines. And even those people who are building monuments, 
Sometimes they leave other forms of art in the workers' villages at um, in in Egypt, in New Kingdom Egyptian sites. We find graffiti that the workers have actually inscribed right. on things, and some of those are quite interesting reflections of how they thought of their world. Gender differences, that's, that's a very, very uh, interesting element of this entire discussion that I'd like to explore a little bit. What I'd like to ask you is, in connection with gender differences, do we see any societies that, or any traits, shall we say, um, between societies in which there are replicating patterns of gendered similarities, gender differences, either by task or, or depictions, and do we have any societies that have emerged in a very unique sort of way? We all are familiar with the myth of the Amazons and, and sort of the very power-oriented women uh, identified as Amazonian types of people. Do we have any societies that sort of broke sort of a more standard pattern and, and we, for which we have archaeological information that said, wow, this was a very unique society in terms of gender differences? Um, I don't actually think we do, but that's partly because I tend to see the archaeological record as giving us a much more complex, therefore more realistic pattern than any simple female patterning. Now, having said that, we certainly have lots of examples archaeologically of societies in which, well, power was primarily held by men. Every so often you'd have a woman who emerges, a sort of a Queen Elizabeth, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. For me, that doesn't actually constitute an exception because Queen Elizabeth used all of the symbols of male power when she ruled. What it is actually telling us is that class, in that case, trumped gender. Um, similarly, we have examples of societies, Mesoamerican societies, where age is really more important than sex. And so during the early years, boys and girls are sort of merged together and actually elders are merged together. And you see that in burial patterns where only during sort of the middle of life are people buried in highly differentiated ways. But for the most part, what we are finding is we can't assume a particular kind of sexual division of labor. In um, Roman colonies in England, there are very good again, bioarchaeological, but also other lines of evidence for women as gladiators, something mm -hmm. that would have been thought of as only a male activity. Correct. In Cholula in Mexico at the time just before the Spanish arrived, Jeffrey McCafferty and Therese McCafferty have argued that some men were spinning cloth at a time when the Aztec ideology said that's what it is to be a woman. So we do have exceptions, we can see those exceptions if we want to think of it as exceptions, but I, I'm kind of suspicious of that. I think mainly we have a very modern belief that men and women's activities should be really, really different, and that's a legacy we have from the 19th century, from Victorian ideologies of the separation of the sexes. If you go back before that, what you see, um, even in the, the sort of Western European historical trend, is much more pragmatic, work-based, class-based, age-based variability. 
so that those types of variabilities ultimately, uh, if shall we say, sort of sort themselves out into an economically based situation uh, where it's essentially contingent on subsistence patterns and organization. Yeah, I, I'm a great believer in the fact that the the struggle to create an existence uh, structures an awful lot of our lives. So when you get right down to it, the social economic roles that are available to you are really going to be what structures more of your experience. I can point to, for example, a bioarchaeological set of studies by Sabrina Agarwal of villages in England, Roman period, medieval period, and then comparing the medieval villages to London, the city. And what we see is she's looking at women's health and aging, at osteoporosis, and she finds that women who are village women actually have relatively lower experiences of osteoporosis. It's being a city person that causes osteoporosis to blossom. And we think of that as completely biological, completely about being a woman. And it turns out it's not. Archaeologically, the evidence is quite clear. Um, it, labor actually can, hard work can actually help you uh, as a woman uh, stave off what we think of today in our modern world as an inevitable aspect of women's aging. So this is a clear example of sort of a, it sense, in a sense, a, a myth, and it's more related to actual activity more than being a purely sexual differentiation. Yeah, it's multifactorial. Um, Agarwal also points out that the number of births, childbirths you have, and uh, lactation, whether you actually um, breastfeed or not, are other factors that can in influence bone health in aging and bone remodeling. So it's not the simple automatic outcome of having a specific gene. In city life, we just don't work as hard. And women in cities in many situations also have lower birth rates. And we will be back with our guest, Dr. Rosemary Joyce of the University of California, Berkeley, and our discussion on gender archaeology and sexuality after these words. Stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. 
However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I am speaking with Dr. Rosemary Joyce of the University of California at Berkeley, where she's a, a professor and the director of the Hearst Museum of Anthropology. Uh, we've been discussing gender, sexuality, uh, sexual differentiation of roles and work, and one of the topics that uh, certainly is of interest uh, to students, I would think, and uh, academic research in the field of gender archaeology is uh, sort of the momentum that has been gathered in anthropological and archaeological circles in the academic world, and that is the increasing emphasis on feminist archaeology and more recently queer archaeology, and I would assume transgender archaeology. Rosemary, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on how that started, because it is a, a more uh, a more recent development and one that certainly has developed in the wake of the focus of feminist archaeology that began in the 80s. And, and give us sort of a roadmap of how uh, academic feminist and queer archaeology has emerged in the past 30 years or so. Yeah, to basically hit a few landmarks, when archaeology of gender first emerged in the 1980s, some of it was explicitly inspired by feminist research, by research that at that time was concerned with establishing the conditions under which inequality, um, male domination, uh, over women had been established historically. And archaeology was very important in that project because archaeology had served to naturalize male-female difference. So to use archaeology to say, no, it hasn't always been this way, it's not natural, it's not automatic. But even in the 1980s, not all archaeologists looking at gender were committed to any kind of feminist project. Those that were, though... um, into the 1990s began to confront challenges, as did feminist researchers in general, from people of color, from queer people who 
who basically pointed out that the paradigm, the model that feminist archaeologists were using, assumed a naturalness to heterosexual um, being and assumed a universal experience of heterosexual binary sexual identity. In the 1990s, then, you start seeing emerge in work that was inspired by um, theorists like Judith Butler, who heavily influenced my own work, a concern with trying to do an analysis of gender that didn't begin by assuming that there were only two kinds of people, males and females. And whether you think of that primarily as there might be multiple forms of masculinities and multiple forms of femininities, or whether it's inspired, as it was in many cases, by indigenous views in which sex was a spectrum, not a binary, so that you could have multiple sexes or multiple genders, third genders, fourth genders. Eventually, the theorists writing about this began raising the question of why we were trying to count all the different genders. So in the 1990s, you start getting archaeologists inspired by feminist thought and inspired by emergent queer theory saying, um, we can't apply a single binary everywhere. And even going to the bioarchaeological evidence and saying, you know, when bioarchaeologists do their original sexing of bodies, they actually don't assign just two categories. They assign five categories, um, strongly likely to be male, strongly likely to be female, possibly male, possibly female, indeterminate. Now, not to say that there's five sexes, but just to say that sex, even to a bioarchaeologist, isn't as simple as an either-or. Into the, the 21st century is actually when you start seeing queer theory really take hold through the work of archaeologists like Barbara Voss, like Chelsea Blackmore, and now an emerging generation, Jamie Arjona of the University of Illinois being a great example, so that at the recent Society for Historic Archaeology meetings, there was a whole session on queer queering archaeology. And queering now <laughs> is not just about sex and gender. It's about saying, what's normal? What are we taking as normal? How can we generalize a single way of human being as normal across all the paths that archaeologists deal with? We deal with many more varied pasts than historians. Queer theory actually asks us to question the categories we use and the power that's built into the categories we use. It asks us to question why we think in terms of a male-female reproductive unit as the natural unit of society. And, and it can have these interesting effects. For example, questioning that reproductive dualistic model doesn't just recover the possibility of men and women in the past whose desire was for other people with similar bodies. It also recovers the lives of women who never had children, even if their desire was for people with a different body. So what queer theory actually is doing in archaeology, as it does in all of the other places it's affecting, is causing us to examine human variability and to take human variability as our question rather than those things which could be generalized or simply summarized. That does make the job a lot more complicated, 
For those of us in archaeology who have been used to taking categories of things and, and using them as evidence for categories of experience, it can be a little frustrating at times. But it, it actually is opening up new questions about bodies of data that people had stopped looking at because they sort of had it all um, all figured out. But there's, there's, there's a problem here, obviously, because archaeology, ultimately, if we turn it back to its basic, is the study of material culture. Then the question becomes, how do we connect these emerging theoretical constructs to the archaeological record and the material cultural record? It's got to be a tricky operation. Yeah, and I would just amend your statement a little bit. I think we can think of archaeology as the study of material traces of human activity in the past. As a geoarchaeologist, I'll know you will appreciate that since the um, material culture thing has always been a little tricky for alterations to the environment that humans have. Of course. So we're actually the people who take material traces of past human action and use them to try and build up our understanding of, of human behavior in the past. So what a queer theory perspective, where it comes in, is not saying that the data are different. That's another of these things that people have often said. So where are you going to look for your special data for queer theory? Exactly, um, yeah. In fact, one of the critiques that is being made by this new generation of queer theorists is stop looking for really special queer places. Uh, we've got a lot of archaeology of brothels. Why? Because they're unusual. Okay, how about asking questions about sexual relations in houses, which are normal spaces? We're taking for granted where sex happens. Barbara Voss didn't take for granted where sex was happening in Mission, California, and as a result, she suggested that the heterosexual sexual relations between uh, indigenous Californians, which traditionally took place outside of buildings, were not being controlled as the Spanish missionaries thought they were by this enclosure. That's taking a queer perspective to something and looking at space differently. So your spatial gambit can't just be the mission. It has to be the mission and its surrounding territory. So one of the things queer theory does for us as materialist scholars is asks us to look at more of a, to change what our sites are, and when we look at the traces in the past, to actually not automatically assign them to humans in two categories. Um, it may not be that I'm going to be talking a lot about, um, you know, trans people, but I can actually ask that question. And in fact, a physical anthropologist, Rebecca Story, looking at a burial at Copan of a person buried with feminine garb, but a very tall person, was moved. And she's not particularly a feminist or queer theorist, but was moved to say, hey, maybe this is an intersex person. She wouldn't have asked that question if we hadn't had the destabilizing influence of queer theory saying, don't assume there's just men and women. She would have just said, this is a very robust female. Right. So what you're what you're looking at, and and I guess this is this is really sort of a revolutionary concept in how we look at things. Is this entire question that you raised earlier? It's a spectrum rather than a dualistic differentiation. Exactly, it changes our model, and then our model has to look at the complexity of the behavioral traces without the simplification of 
assuming heterosexual simplicity. Are we looking, are we detecting any societies, well, obviously, if you go back to depictions, artistic depictions, as we discussed earlier, certainly the Romans and the Greeks yeah. understood all of this, and, and they, they would, for lack of a better word, be more consistent with the spectrum perspective on, on what the human condition really was. Yeah. Um, are we seeing any advances in that uh, type of study uh, with respect to particular societies or particular examples? I mean, you had mentioned prostitution and expanding the range of what is called a site into a more sort of meso-environmental or meso-background kind of a perspective. What are, what are we seeing here? Yeah, actually, if there's too much to talk about, that's the amazing thing about this. When I wrote my book, Ancient Bodies, Ancient Lives, I tried to take a global scope. And even so, I had to be very selective and pick particular examples. There's not an area of the world where this kind of research has been practiced where we haven't learned new things. Um, what new things we've learned varies from place to place. For example, I'll, I'll use your example of ancient Greece, where it's been well known for a very long period, it's in the classical texts as well as in visuals, that there was an institutionalized acceptance of older men having sex with younger men. Uh, that is something that we can, uh, you know, reconfirm and reconfirm and reconfirm. Historians of sex in the 20th century, Thomas LaCour, studying ancient Greek texts, actually told us something new about that. And what he told us is that the ancient Greeks actually thought of there being only one sex. What we think of as males and females were just different degrees of a single sexual anatomy. And this is a, this is a medical model. So now when we look at those ancient Greek things and we look at the sexual relations that are memorialized between older men and younger men, we understand that that's actually not different in Greek thought than older men and women. And it's why older men having sex with older men is not memorialized, because that was considered unacceptable. The variability in your expression of this single sex made men appropriate to have, adult men appropriate to have sex with less mature men or with women, that is, people with less developed version of the sex. So even in a place where we already had a lot of indication of this, it's revolutionized what we think about. We can look at medieval England, where Roberta Gilchrist has called our attention to the sexuality of cloistered nuns, which sounds like the beginning of a joke, but isn't. She's not saying, you know, that these women were having clandestine sexual relations in infants. Instead, she looks at the physical layout of nunneries, and the artwork there, and shows us that celibacy was actually, what we see as celibacy, not having sex with human men, was part of a dedication as what were called Brides of Christ. Brides of Christ being understanding that their sexuality has been turned to a deity. The same medieval time period, Gilchrist again, looks 
masculinity and points out that there's more than one masculinity going on with warriors having actually more robust skeletons and being treated as different kinds of men than men who were not warriors. So from case after case as we go around the world, what this new querying basically is doing is letting us see the particularities, especially of sexual um, sexual desire, sexual activity. And that and introduces so, something we just never talked about in archaeology before. So, yeah, because it's, it's just much more convenient to sort out an either-or situa- situation rather than the type of nuances that you're discussing in this particular perspective, which uh, certainly seems to conform to a lot of the data, uh, certainly if we look at it in certain ways. And... Uh, On that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to conclude our discussion. I want to thank Rosemary Joyce for participating in this very intriguing discussion on gender archaeology and sexuality. And I thank you very much for being here, Rosemary. Well, thank you again for the invitation. And until next time, this is Joe Schuldenrein, and have a wonderful week, and we will see you next time. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.